So um, one of the things that I love about the, the Buddha's teachings is um, he seems to be incredibly skilled at sort of packaging complex and very profound teachings and putting them in a way that is easy to remember and easy to understand. And one of the monks was telling me one time, he said that he really looks at the teachings this way. He says the, the Buddha um, is basically saying the same thing over and over and over again. <laughs> and he's just, he's just coming at it in a way that maybe, maybe you didn't get it last time, but you might get it if I put it this way. Or you know, maybe this mind will get it this way and another mind will get it that way. And uh, I, I just I love that because there's so many different ways to understand this basic path that he's putting out the path to freedom and, and liberation. And, uh, you know, he uses that image a lot, just the, the image of a journey or a path. Is maybe the most common one that we're familiar with is the Eightfold Path uh, to, to the realization of freedom. But there's others. There's, there are plenty of others, and um, one of them is one that I'd like to talk about tonight. Um, it's um, the teaching on the five indriya, or the five spiritual faculties, which is another way that we, we look at this path. The, uh, the word um, indriya is a word that comes from the, the Vedic texts. Um, where there was a, a god in the Vedic scriptures um, known as Indra, um, who uh, it's known to have uh, vanquished a, a, a quite a large number of demons in order to become the lord or the, the supreme ruler of all of the devas. And so it's interesting that the Buddha chose this word to use to describe what these five indriya, or the, or the spiritual faculties, uh, because uh, what we do through this um, practice is uh, really become, uh, sort of perfect uh, different aspects of our um, experience. And uh, each one of these uh, is designed to sort of subdue something that's sort of like a mental frailty and to um, strengthen or, or pursue uh, something that needs strengthening. So these five indriya are faith, uh, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And these are the things that need to be developed and, and cultivated in practice. You know, some of you may be quite familiar with the, the Pali Canon, the books of the Canon, and uh, one that's particularly useful, I think, is the Samyutta Nikaya, because what somebody did years uh, after the Buddha is take a lot of his teachings and then uh, uh, collect them into, um, uh, you know, say, a single book that uh, addresses a particular aspect of the teachings. Samyutta means uh, the... Um, collected works, collected uh, teachings. And so you have things like, you know, the five aggregates, they're all in the khanda samyutta, the, the, uh, uh, things like this. And then this one in particular, the, the indriya samyutta, uh, contains all of the suttas and the teachings around um, this particular teaching. Uh, it's very helpful. It's actually a small book, but there are some things in it that really stand out and really help us to understand one of them in particular that got my attention was the Buddha goes through the five indriya and he describes them in terms of um, what it takes to develop each one. Uh, I'm not going to go into that at length, but uh, a couple of things within it really got my attention. One is um, when he talks about faith, and actually all of these are very easy to remember because we've got five spiritual faculties and there are four things in each category that he's talking about under that. So that can be really helpful. But the, when he's talking about faith, he says the things that make for the arising of faith, the development of faith, and this may surprise you, they're um, having um, good spiritual friends, keeping the company of, of people of like mind. Um, it has to do with um, listening to the Dhamma, listening to the Dhamma and applying oneself in the practice of the Dhamma. And uh, it has to do with um, cultivating wise attention over unwise attention. I found that one particularly fascinating because it's so simple and so very practical. And of course, this is how we would cultivate faith keeping the company of people who maybe know just a little bit more than we do, listening and to the Dhamma and studying and putting it into practice in our lives. 
the, the things that have to do with the um, cultivation or development of energy are also four in number. And these are uh, what you're probably very familiar with, um, the four right efforts. Um, developing the capacity to overcome difficult states that have come into the mind and to keep them at bay. And developing the, the capacity to develop skillful states and do what you need to do, learn what you need to do to keep them strong in the mind, to sustain them. The, the faculty of mindfulness is, um, includes the four foundations of mindfulness, which I talked about last week. You know, uh, developing the capacity to be able to see body as body, feeling as feeling, Mind as mind, and mind objects as mind objects. It's no small potatoes. <laughs> it's a big, tall order to be able to do that. But that's that. What is what um, the Buddha is outlining as a uh, development of mindfulness. With concentration, it has to do with the four stages of jhana, four mental absorptions, and wisdom. The faculty of wisdom has to do with. Um, cultivating our understanding of the Four Noble Truths. There is difficulty, it has a cause, it has an end, and there's a way to that end. The, the, the five spiritual faculties and how they're developed. Actually, interesting, too, that use of the word faculty. Um, it's, a, it's an unusual word uh, in this regard because he's actually referring to something that is very active. It's, a, it's something that we sustain or, or d- develop and actually sustain and, and utilize, like make use of in our lives and in our practice, in the process of waking up. So you might notice when we look at this progress, this um, uh, series, you know, faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, you've got in the middle there three key factors that you also see in the Eightfold Path that have to do with the meditation practice. So this is, this is where I think this is an interesting collection or package because what the Buddha is laying out here is, is kind of a causal loop that if you begin with faith, and I want to talk a lot about faith tonight because it's a, it's a key player and often neglected. <laughs> but if, if you begin with faith and that faith that sustains us uh, through the months and years and possibly lifetimes of practice, apply ourselves in the meditation practice through effort, mindfulness, and concentration, this will, in fact, lead inevitably to um, the realization of um, right uh, understanding, the right intention, panya, the wisdom aspect of the path. It will lead necessarily to um, complete understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So you get this causal loop, and it's like, oh, well, wait a minute. Now, now we're talking about something I can, I can wrap my mind around because it's, a, it's actually a, a technology uh, uh, that he's laying out. You know, something that if we give some thought to what he's saying here, it's enormously, enormously helpful to us in our practice. So the, the spiritual faculties, faculties then can be regarded as a description of how faith, when it is acted upon, skillfully, wisely, thoroughly, um, inevitably, inherently leads to wisdom and to our ultimate freedom. I don't know about you, but that gets my attention. <laughs> I, want, I want to know more about what he's saying here. So each of these faculties has to perform a certain function, and they all kind of interact and support each other as we, as we go along the path. I just want to consider the function of each of these and, and invite you to really look in your heart and in your life and see how this is active, how you're understanding and knowing this for yourselves. Beginning with faith, in order to, to get a sense of this, the direct experience of faith, I just want to ask you to take a moment and recall, to go back the number of years ago, that, uh, and recall that moment when um, you, you first uh, turned towards Buddhism, maybe took the teachings to heart in one way or another, or maybe when you first heard the teachings. And, and consider, you know, what was going on? 
in your life at that time and what that experience of turning towards the teachings was like. You know, for, for a lot of people, for, including myself, there was some difficulty. You know, we all have difficulties in our life and uh, many people pursue a lot of different schools of religious thought and try to come to some um, methods or understandings that will help us to get out of that difficulty. Yeah? And for, for some of us, it's just, it might just be a case of um, hearing the teachings and then a very common experience is that I hear a lot. Is, is people saying like, it just was so, I so resonated with it all. <laughs> you know, it, it, he was saying, everything I heard, everything he said was things I already knew, but I just hadn't put it in those words, you know. You get that kind of feeling where uh, you believe it, you, you agree, you don't have any resistance to what's being said. You know, and for some people, they, they may not even know why. Why are you drawn to Buddhism? Why are you drawn to these teachings? You know, you, don't, you may not even have really looked to see what it is that is the reason why. We just know that we're drawn. We know that we're drawn to these teachings and practices. And just feel that. This is the direct experience of faith. It's kind of a amorphous thing. You can't, you can't really get your handle on it in, in some respects. It's just there. And it drives us in the direction of freedom. And everybody in this room, everybody here has an enormous amount of it. And I think it's worth noting because we don't look at it that way very often, do we? <laughs> but this is a Im- very important ingredient because there's something going on, some fuel that keeps driving us and often in, in the face of enormous difficulty. You know, when, when you think about it, this practice is very difficult. You know, first of all, um, you have to sit for hours and sometimes weeks and months and years <laughs> and, and sort of enduring, receiving, you know, being bombarded by uh, a, a lot of mental states that maybe sometimes in and of themselves they're unattractive, but they can sort of be like an interference. You know, you're given this simple instruction to sit instill the mind, relax, and try to muster some semblance of objectivity in relation to the things going on in the mind. But over and over again, one finds it's very difficult to do that. You know, to get outside of it all enough to watch it. These, these states of mind, the patterns and uh, habits of mind just tend to dominate, don't they? You know, it's very, very strong. You know, and practice is going to put us completely at odds with these patterns and habits of mind. That they, they just seem hell-bent on deflecting our attention away from what it is that we're trying to do. So given that, I mean, just look at that. And maybe this isn't your experience, but it sure has been mine. I mean... Over the years, especially the early years of practice, it was like exercises in failure. You know, I just fail so much. It, what 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 keeps you going? I mean, isn't that remarkable? <laughs> this is hard. It's something something keeps us at it. That's faith. You want to feel it. You want to shine the light on it, and really acknowledge the, the sheer force of that that's driving your actions and your behaviors and practice. Most of us have, have had the experience of, of wanting to throw in the towel at one time or another, but we don't. I mean, don't you find that wild? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I just find that totally amazing. It takes a long time to soften the mind so that we can begin to see clearly. And, and faith is the thing that keeps us going. 
while this softening, you know, it's just this nice, sweet, loosening everything up is taking place. Another way that it serves us is that, uh, you know, a lot of practice, a lot of what we're discovering and learning through practice um, can at times put us at odds with the culture, with the very society that we live in. You know, um, and we have to actually have the strength uh, of of heart, the, the conviction of heart, to go against what our society is saying, if, in fact, what we uncover through our practice, through our, our observing directly, um, if what uh, we uncover goes against what that society says. That's a biggie. You know, lots of times, it, a lot of the things that we come to understand through practice will, in fact, do that. For example, you know, one of the things that's very obvious is that... Um, what our society, and maybe even in our own hearts, what, what we value um, as, say, a high standard of living, is all um, um, around consuming and achieving and acquiring and having and getting and getting rid of and enjoying certain kinds of things. This is, this is what the society sets forth as uh, what's needed or what's necessary in order to enjoy any kind of happiness in life. But it really flies in the face of what we come to see through practice, what the Buddha is defining as happiness. You know, the high standard of living in Buddhist practice has to do with sila. <laughs> you want to be happy, behave well. <laughs> It doesn't get any better than that. And all you have to do is just watch as you're practicing, right? You know, just look and see whether... Just, just, just looking, say, at, at the experience of giving versus getting. You know, the standards that we live in seem to say that it's, it's all about getting. Just get this and get that and it'll all be great, you know? But if you... As you practice and you see what generosity is like. You know, this whole experience of, of reversing this unbelievably driven tendency to, to pull towards, you know, get, or what can I get for me to gratify me, you know, and just reverse that and um, extend out. You know, what is it like to override that impulse and um, offer for the welfare and well-being of other people. It's, it's, it's fabulous stuff. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons, one of the things I love when I, I go to the monastery is taking part on a, on a daily basis in what the Buddha set up, you know, the, the alms round, the giving of food, the offering of food um, to the monastic community. And what one does in this practice on a daily basis you know, every day I go and do my puja and I have my little sitting and we have a little something to eat for breakfast and then I go to the kitchen and I start cooking. You know? And it's all around um, responding to something that one values in one's own heart. It's like you say, this, what these people are doing here is valuable and important. The society that doesn't have spiritual seekers in it doesn't value that is a very is in a very weakened state, and so what we're saying is that this is important. It's important enough to me to say, let me do what I can to support that, uh, including very simple things like providing for food, clothing, shelter, and medicine, so that people can who want to do that can do that. And so every day, you know, I get to cook some food, and then the monks and nuns file through. And you have this amazing experience of taking food that you've just spent the morning preparing and putting it in their bowl. <laughs> you know, to this day, I've been doing this for 20 years, I can't do it without getting all choked up and giddy inside or goose flesh or something like this. This, this arising of um, a wish to offer 
and the actual full experience and expression uh, of expression of of offering. Man, this is good stuff. <laughs> it, it makes you very, very happy. You know, the Buddha is so smart to have set it up like this so that we get to practice in this way every day. So, you know, we, we have to take on some of these crazy values of our society and dare to practice in a way so that we see what the Buddha is pointing to and discover for ourselves that, man, he's nailing it over and over and over and again. The, the simple things that are uh, laid out in the, in the precepts. You know, it, it's about harmlessness. It's about generosity. It's about respect for another person. It, you know, it, it's about uh, kindness and harmlessness in speech and keeping the mind clear and happy. You know, they're not like rules to um, make our lives miserable. <laughs> you know, he's pointing to a great happiness that we come to by, by living in this way. So, you know, where the society tends to, to value uh, things like greed, hatred, and, and delusion, you know, that looks to these really as, as viable means to bring about happiness. Um, you know, we're looking at something else very different. And it can, it can create a little bit of a rub sometimes. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been at parties, maybe with some of your non-Buddhist friends, and they ask you what you're all about and what's going on in your life, you know. One time I, ha- I had the occasion of to, trying to explain what it was in my life that I was trying to, learning to live without. You know? It was a real conversation stopper. You know? no, nobody wanted to go there. <laughs> But faith is the thing that just um, gradually helps us live these values. You know, you live the values that you hold dear. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's that's what it's about. And so, settling the mind, you know, learning to settle it, and and then taking on some of the aspects of the culture that don't quite fit. In some ways, I find that these are really small compared to um, taking on the three characteristics, <laughs> which is what we're also doing in practice. You know, daring to look at uh, the tendency towards, um, you know, that uh, just a highly conditioned tendency in our lives to to want to make everything comfortable and certain and sure and to, to, to be on top of things all of the time. You know, the, the, every one of us has sort of got this reptilian brain aspect of our being that is programmed for survival. And so these things of, of security and certainty and comfort and being on top of things are, are, are kind of hardwired into, a, into the, the brain. Very instinctive, deeply rooted drives in all of us. And yet, uh, what the Buddha is, is uh, encouraging, <laughs> pointing us in the direction of, is uh, realities about our existence that fly in the face of even our biology. Very deep, instinctive levels. It, life is impermanent. It's unsatisfactory. And we don't have the kind of control that we would like to have. So I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I definitely feel all this. I, yeah, yeah, I want to be comfortable, you know. I want to be secure. I want to be able to control and manage my world in a way that I, I, I have some sense of knowing what the outcome's going to be, you know. So everything, everything in you, when you face these realities, it just screams, you know, like, no, I don't want it to be like that. And yet these are, these are the insights of insight meditation. This is what the Buddha is trying to get us to see. So look, look at what you have to take on to be able to see that. How, where are you going to get the energy? Where are you going to get the drive to keep that going if it's not faith? Very, very powerful 
energy within all of us that just keeps us hanging in there through, through thick and thin. And as we see impermanent suffering and non-self, then things begin to start to get easier. So the process, the meditation is helping us to see that, and we move to the um, experience of wisdom, which then can circle back and make the whole practice a lot easier. The more and more informed we become, the easier it all becomes. So just to invite you, encourage you to reflect some on faith and look for it in your own experience. Uh, and see it. It's a, it's a key player, as I said. And um, I don't think that we uh, are attuned enough to the presence of it in, in our hearts. And the more that you're attuned to it, the more it's going to be there to serve us. It's like, just shine the light on it and know it. Yeah, yeah. I've got it. <laughs> I like this stuff. I'm going to stay with it. I'm going to see it through all the way to the final completion. So energy. Energy is another biggie. Without effort, energy, perseverance, um, you know, we can't, we can't make much progress on the path at all. <clears throat> and usually... We, we're kind of flip-flopping in this regard. You know, I think most of you will admit to being uh, familiar with, say, the, the whining and the complaining in the mind, you know, the bit that would just rather veg out. Just, I just, just want to veg. <laughs> just leave me alone. <laughs> I don't want to do anything, you know. This is energy that would, would rather do nothing than anything useful with our time and with our energy. Perhaps you've seen this once or twice. I've heard about it, you know. <laughs> and I'm sure you're familiar with um, the other extreme of that, which is just these excesses of energy, where there's just that the whole system gets on overdrive and you get very restless and, and agitated and anxious and giddy in life. And these, you know, just the experience of this, this, this excess of energy is highly stressful. It's, it's the, the hardest thing on the physical body, let alone the mind. It's just very, very hard on the physical body. So, you, you know, as you practice, you begin to see that uh, life and practice is like a pendulum swing in this regard. You're just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, <clears throat> you know, like you, you, if you see it, you see it in life, but you see it in practice particularly as well. Like uh, I've noticed in, in my own practice and talked to a lot of people about it, that you know, early on, there, one can come with a, a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, and that energy, the energy of that enthusiasm, can can drive us a lot in in the early years. And I know I had a, a feeling like I was just going to apply the technique, I was going to get good at it, and just get the job done. You know, that kind of thing. And often, this is what. Uh, what happens on our first retreat, say you have an incredible enthusiasm. And I know a lot of people report their first retreat was just full of insight. And the mind got very still, lots of insight, lots of understanding. And, you know, 20 years later, they're just trying to recover that same kind of experience, you know. It's, it's like it's the, we ride on the high energy as we come to practice. But, it doesn't last so much because it, there's a giddiness about it. There's an agitation in it, actually. So we undertake, we continue in practice, really, just to try to learn how to even things out a bit. And the fine-tuning of this um, spiritual faculty of energy, um, with this, we're gonna, we learn to kind of navigate around these extremes, don't we? You begin to notice when it's too much and when there's not enough. And hopefully, over the months and years of practice, one begins to look at that more and more impartially. It's just more a matter of fact, oh, there's not enough energy. And you do what you need to do to get more energy. Or there's too much energy. You do what you need to do to, to calm the mind. There's a, a, a beautiful sutta in the uh, Anguttara Nikaya where, uh, wherein the Buddha is talking to one of the monks 
and reflecting on his life as a layman before he was a monk. And he says, before you, know, before you were a monk and you were a house traveler, did you, um, were you skilled at playing the lute? And the monk said, yes, yes, yes. And, and so the Buddha said, what do you think? You know, when you, when you um, tuned the lute and you tightened the strings really tight, uh, were you able to make music? No, venerable sir, couldn't, couldn't make music. The strings are too tight. And then he says, when, when you didn't tighten them enough, when the strings were all very loose, were you able to make music? No, Venerable Sir, wasn't able to make music. It was like a big thud, you know. The, the, the lute doesn't make music. But eventually, you know, he says, when, when you learn how to tune it just right, so it's not too tight, it's not too loose, then do you get music? Yes, Venerable Sir, <laughs> very good music, very beautiful music. So in the same way, he says, uh, over-aroused persistence leads to restlessness. Overly slack persistence leads to laziness. So you should learn the right pitch for effort, for energy. And this is what we do, isn't it? You, be, you just watch what's happening as you're practicing and see what, how you make changes and how you're going about things. A lot of it is going to be around the noticing of the pitch. Is the energy too high or too low? And what are the adjustments that you make to accommodate that? And then as we do this, and uh, our understanding of the energy spiritual faculty gets more and more informed, then we're more and more able just to, to look objectively at what's going on in the body and more and more able to see these things that the Buddha is calling the four great efforts. You'll be able to see when there's difficulty and how to overcome it and how to stay out of it, and able to see when um, there is a need for skillful states, how to develop those and how to keep them going. Isn't that what we're doing? So mindfulness, um, mindfulness um, serves to bring a kind of a, a sober awareness, if you will, um, and presence to our lives. In Buddhism, as you know, it occupies a very central position. It's uh, very, very highly valued and a, a key player in overcoming suffering in this whole process of overcoming suffering. Uh, in the, the Sutta on the Foundations of Mindfulness, the Buddha says that uh, this is how he brings home the importance of it. He says that this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely these four foundations of mindfulness. So we know what he's saying but do we understand it? Are we applying ourselves in a way that is making it possible for us to understand over the months and years of practice? What he's saying in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is that um, the surface of the mind is in, in a very perturbed and agitated state. And yet, in a way that I can't explain, we're just completely preoccupied with what's going on at that level. So that uh, sensations, feelings, and thoughts uh, predominate. And all of our attention goes to being caught up in what's going on with the body and mind. Now, when this happens, then what, uh, we, what gets missed, or what we effectively lose sight of in all this, is a, is a natural calm or an awareness that, in a way, it lies underneath all of this. It's like you can't get there because the mind keeps attending to other things. You know, it's not that the calm and the still and the aware place isn't there. It's that we're not turning our attention towards it. <laughs> we're completely caught up with the objects of the mind, the things that are going on in the mind, and and missing 
the very thing that uh, could be for our welfare. It's, it's a fascinating analysis when you look at it this way. This is his whole teaching on wise and unwise attention. We have this uncanny and totally ignorant habit <laughs> of attending to a bunch of stuff that is of no consequence and not attending to uh, the knowing of that that is of consequence. And so, you know, put this way, I mean, it's a very, it's like practice becomes this, this very simple thing of kind of turning the mind in another direction and looking at the bit that's knowing it all and trying to find a way to, to rest in that, you know, be the knowing of what's going on instead of the things that it knows, that the knowing knows. But it's very hard to do, you know, and we, we, we persistently and compulsively attend to other things. So you get, you get these, you know, things where we all report that song that won't stop singing in the mind or the, the pains that won't go away or the moods or the mind states. You know, we live our lives as if these moods and mind states are permanent and solid and there all of the time. But really what he's pointing to, and this has to be seen, we all have to see this for ourselves, is that there's no, there's no song that keeps singing in the mind except that at some very subtle level, maybe, we keep singing it. <laughs> we keep attending to it. You know, there's no mood that lingers except at some very subtle level we keep believing what it's saying. Yeah? This is, this is the, the power of mindfulness, is to be able to, to penetrate, to see for ourselves that what the Buddha is saying here, that this is true. So, so mindfulness, along with concentration, it, it helps us harness this distractedness. So then that we're able to see the um, mental and, and physical events a lot more objectively, just to be able to notice them as, as phenomena, not self just things that are rising in the field of awareness. And then, when we can muster that kind of objectivity, to be able to see this relating that constitutes the clinging and constitutes the suffering. And that way, learning about what constitutes suffering and and how to let it go. This is the power of mindfulness. It's actually bringing us to this understanding of the the, um, Four Noble Truths. You know, this is the suffering, this is how it's happening, and this is how you let it go. So again, mindfulness is a, is a key player in this process of waking up. Everything is predicated on our capacity just to be aware of what's happening in the body and in the mind, and, and just to muster some objectivity in relation to all of that. So now concentration. Concentration is this wonderful quality or faculty that that serves to relax and settle the mind. And we can think of it as deep absorption, and that's indeed how the the Buddha defines it. Um, But as you know, there's a lot of debate in our communities (laughs) around um, whether or not these high states of absorption are actually necessary in order to be free. Well, a friend and I came upon a sutta that really helped in this regard, you know, because quite frankly, those debates drive me nuts. You know? <laughs> and you, it's just a bunch of opinions and views going back and forth, and it always seems to be uh, some way to substantiate what we want to do or don't want to do. You know, I don't want to get into jhana. Well, jhana is not important, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But finally, uh, as I said, a friend and I, uh, found this uh, sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya where the Buddha sets the record straight. And I just wanted to hear it from the Buddha. I didn't want to hear it from my own arguments and those of other people anymore. And this is what he says. It's a, he's talking about um, the seven kinds of people found existing in the world. I'm not going to go into all seven, but just the first two. Um, they're called one liberated in both ways and one liberated by wisdom. Uh, 
one, the first kind, the person who is liberated in both ways. And here's the language. Here, some person contacts with the body and abides in those liberations that are peaceful and immaterial, transcending forms, and his taints are destroyed by seeing and wisdom. This language, now, if I didn't have the help of my Pali scholar friend, I wouldn't have known what he was saying here. But what he's referring to, some people, um, some person contacts with the body and abides in those liberations that are peaceful and immaterial, transcending forms. That's jhana. You uh, are, are realizing, abiding in peaceful states that are immaterial and transcendent, transcend forms, transcend the material plane. So that's jhana. And his taints are destroyed by seeing and wisdom. That's, that's uh, understanding, vipassana, insight. So that's one kind of person, a person who gets free by practicing jhanas and through insight. And the second kind of person is one who doesn't um, contact with the body and abide in those liberations that are peaceful and immaterial, transcending forms. But his taints are destroyed by seeing and wisdom. So it's right there (laughs) in the words of the Buddha. You, 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 you get free with or without jhana. So, for the purposes of insight, um, jhana can be seen primarily, really, as a means of helping. I don't want to diminish the fact that he does emphasize it. So it, it, it can be seen primarily as a means of helping us to um, train the mind, to stay put. It's incredibly powerful to help train the mind to stay put. Anybody who has gotten into these absorbed states knows what we're talking about. And it's also incredibly powerful as a way of experiencing, granted temporarily, but experiencing a mind that is free of the five hindrances. So one knows through this experience that indeed these states are visitors to the mind. They are not me, they aren't mine. They uh, are a rising and passing phenomenon. And, and absorbed states will give you the experience of knowing that very directly for ourselves. But for the purpose of insight and understanding, it's enough to learn to relax, to conceive of concentration as a relaxed state that is very conducive to understanding. This is huge because it's just it's not our habit to relax. So even when we're not talking about concentration as jhana, it's still huge. It's still very, very powerful. You know, I was just talking to somebody recently who was practicing in an, in an intensive way and, you know, he kept hearing me use this word, relax, relax, relax. I know, and he reported to me, he said, you know, I hear you say this over and over again. And he said, I have no idea what you are talking about. I, I do not know this experience of being relaxed. And I think that's a lot more common than maybe some of us would like to admit. You know, we're, we're just agitated, <laughs> anxious, restless, busy, fussy, giddy, so much of the time. You know, I just watch myself throughout the course of the day. How many times a day do I see myself with my, my jaw locked or my, or my shoulders hunched? You know, or, or sometimes just laying in bed at night, drifting off to sleep, and just watching, just noticing the experience of the body. It's like completely seized up. I go, oh, okay, just relax. Loosen up, relax, let go. Two seconds later, completely seized up again. Relax, relax, let it go, let it go. <laughs> okay, two seconds later, completely seized up again. It's like this, isn't it? You know, because we're thinking, agitating thoughts, there's the very subtle levels, there's a lot of anxiety going on. And the whole system uh, is quite regularly seized up around all of this. So it's no, 
uh, it's no surprise that we don't know what it means to relax. And, and it's, it's, it's no sh- there's no shame in admitting that. It just uh, acknowledge it and look objectively and be kind and find what we need to do to soften and relax. Somebody once asked Ajahn Chah, you know, by the way, how much concentration do I need in order to have insight? And his response may surprise you. He he said, um, just enough to establish presence of mind. Just enough to establish some presence of mind. And then the last one, wisdom, it serves to um, help us to, it is the means or the experience, actually, of understanding the deeper realities of our existence. So the the process, whether we realize it or not, this process of waking up um, has the the, uh, capacity to take us all the way to freedom. So we start with faith, And it helps us to accept a lot of the teachings that the Buddha is laying at our feet. We have to accept them with a certain amount of faith and a certain amount of of even belief, if if you will, early on and for many years in practice until we have done the work that it takes to see these truths for ourselves. And there's there's a whole litany of them. And they can seem uh, mind-boggling and pretty intense until you just begin to pick it apart and look at what's going on as you uh, practice and the things that you're coming to to understand. So one of the things that we um, maybe accept for a while until we see for ourselves is the the teaching of the law of karma. You come to see that actions have consequences and um, begin to take more and more responsibility for our actions through the years of practice. So obviously, um, it, it's not that we didn't know this before Buddhism. you know. But I think what happens as a result of practice is that a shift takes place. Because before practice, or maybe in the early years of practice, when you see yourself doing unskillful things, you know, the, the, the tendency, the shoot-from-the-hip response, if you will, is to... You know, to become irritated and to beat up on ourselves a little bit about what it is that we see. You know, we don't we don't like it. Or what I've also seen is, you know, we tend to explain away the behaviors or justify them in one way or another. You know, this is a this is these are the patterns or the responses of someone who doesn't yet understand the truth of the law of karma. But as as we start to see it over, over the years, what happens is that we begin to, do, to uh, incline more and more towards skillful actions. And this becomes just a whole lot more matter-of-fact because we see for ourselves that this really is true. We're happier. There's, um, it's it's kind of like there's no rub in the heart when we're behaving well. And so it, it's like the... Uh, the, the the mind and the heart just begin to incline that way because it feels better. It's a, it's a much more pleasant abiding. You know, there's one sutta in the um, Madhyama Nikaya that, you know, when I first read it, it just boggled my mind because in it, the, the Buddha is talking about his own enlightenment and he said, um, he talks about it so you know, casually almost, it, it sounds to me, but he says basically he, uh, in, in the process of his waking up, he divided his thoughts in, into two classes. So on the one side there was thoughts of sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty. And on the other side there are thoughts of renunciation, non-ill will, and non-cruelty. And he said that as he abided... Um, diligently practicing, and, and um, he was able to see that the, the unskillful thoughts uh, lead to his own suffering, to the suffering of other people, 
they create difficulties and they don't lead to nibbana. And he was able to see that the other uh, side, the skillful thoughts, do the opposite. He says, when I considered thus, um, he found, he said, when he really understood this, he's pointing to the law of karma, when he really understood this, um, he found that the skillful, uh, the unskillful thoughts just began to wither and fade away. And so that when, uh, he said, whenever a thought of desire or difficulty arose in him, he was able to abandon it and do away with it. He makes it sound so easy. But, you know, he's pointing to the, the process that we are all going through. You know, as we really, really see the truth of this, then uh, it becomes easier and easier and easier to uh, abandon the unskillful. I like that, and I certainly have seen that verified in my own practice in life. Another thing that we come to see, that we kind of hold as something to be understood, but maybe um, it takes a while to understand it, is the teaching on rebirth. Um, When we come to realize uh, that even death is not an escape from the consequences of our actions. That's what the Buddha is laying out with this. You know, you go ahead and you can die. You still not, you, the work of liberation is still not done <laughs> if you die in ignorance, right? So, I mean, on one level, we can't know this unless we realize um, powers of mind that make it possible for us to see uh, past lives. Uh, he said, you can't, you can't know it without that power of mind directly. But for myself, you know, I like the idea of it. It just seems to justify or um, verify a lot of things for me. It makes it all uh, a little bit more uh, neat and tidy when it comes to um, the fruits of unskillful actions. But even if we don't know the whole truth of rebirth in this way, we can see it in our practice from moment to moment where, you know, and it's enough to see it in this way, in every moment when we're not free, that we're relating with craving and ignorance. And that every time that we relate in that way, we can guarantee that we're going to do it again. So you see the rebirth taking place. Uh, a rebirth of a, of a behavior, of an action. The teaching of dependent origination and non-self. I mean, this is, this is some pretty heavy stuff on one level. But basically, when you pick it apart, what he's getting at here is that, um, you know, we come to see that things arise out of conditions. It's not arising out of the prompting of some self. It's not driven by or controlled in any way uh, by the uh, prompting of some self. Before we know this, Everything is very personal. You know, so you see, you see yourself do things or behave in ways or other people, and you know, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with them? You know, why are they behaving that way? And, and from the vantage point of wisdom, that kind of thinking doesn't make any sense at all. It makes no sense at all to hold it in that kind of personal way. You know, things are not happening in that way. They're, they're not happening through uh, a self. So what we come to understand through the, the months and years of practice, um, you know, we find that you're getting more and more free of self-loathing or, or self-inflation uh, because one is beginning to understand for oneself that things are, are arising in a wholly different way. And this, that, that whole pattern of turning it back on ourselves and beating up on ourselves or feeling exalted by ourselves. It, it just doesn't, it just has no, nothing to stand on. There's no basis for that kind of thinking anymore. And so finally then, um, 
Wisdom has to do with realizing for ourselves the truth of the Four Noble Truths. So this is the, a process that goes on for many years and many lifetimes probably, to be seeing for ourselves that there um, is difficulty, how it happens, how it ends, how to make it end, the whole path that leads to the liberation of it. So this, this teaching I find very, very helpful as a model for understanding. I mean, maybe it's just the way my mind works, but I like to understand this process that I'm engaged in. You know, the more that we understand uh, the process, then the, the more we're able to use it skillfully and the more faith that you have in the process. <laughs> and so therefore the more that we can hang in there through all the difficulties that practice brings. So there's a uh, one little tag on the on the end of this teaching that's actually very very important and has to do with how the, the the balancing of these five indriya. You know, in, in practice, it's uh, it's said that um, they're uh, divided into two pairs. That um, there's the, the faith and the wisdom uh, pair, and uh, the energy and the concentration pair. And this can be a really helpful thing to look in our practice at any given moment and see if these are out of sync. So, for example, if somebody has an excess of faith, you find incredible enthusiasm for practice, but you get so giddy and excited about things that the mind has great difficulty settling down. Or maybe one uh, follows or picks up with uh, teachers or teachings that... Um, are, are not actually the truth, you know, and, but we put too much faith in them uh, without examining for ourselves to see for ourselves if, if what's being said is true. So the, the faith faculty always needs to be balanced by the, the wisdom faculty and vice versa because you can have too much wisdom or in this case, say, intellect. And this is very common where people read the teachings and read all about the progress of insight and read all about the things that we're supposed to see and how we're supposed to see it. And then it's like, you know, you keep looking to see if you're getting it. You know, it's like digging up the, the, the vegetables that are in the earth to see if they're growing, you know. It's that same kind of experience. So that, um, you know, one of the biggest obstacles to a highly in, in, uh, intelligent or somebody who has uh, studied too much, is um, that we can't really, we lose faith. We lose this whole, whole, whole energy of being able just to relax into the process. Yeah? I've certainly seen this in myself at times. Just relax. You know, there's time for study, there's time for practice. And when you're applying yourself in this way, just trust that what one has learned is accessible and available to you. And, and put it aside and keep focusing on right here, right now. What's happening? Do I know what's happening? Do I see how it's happening? And that will bring about the balancing of, of faith and wisdom. And of course the energy and concentration is pretty self-evident. You know, if there's too much energy in the system, it's like that giddiness that I was talking about. You get, you get excessive, agitated, restless energy going. And what the mind needs then is tranquility, re- relaxation, equanimity. And if we have um, too much concentration, then you get this sinking mind, this, you know, this totally uh, absorbed ever-sinking mind <laughs> that has no energy or vitality at all. And mindfulness um, is the one that stands alone. I like to see it because I have Italian descent um, in my background and um, I'm one who holds, uh, is of the opinion that you can never have too much basil or garlic. <laughs> and this is what mindfulness is like. <laughs> you can never have too much mindfulness. <laughs> Don't worry about it. You can't have too much of it. You, you, you need it, and it needs to be very strong and vital in all instances. 
too much uh, faith or energy or concentration or uh, understanding can agitate the mind. But mindfulness doesn't, doesn't do that. It, it's seen uh, in this model as the great protector. It's the one that's uh, evaluating that there's too much of this and not enough of that. It's the one that sort of stands alone and is sorting out what the system uh, contains and what it needs uh, in order to be in the, in the state that is relaxed and settled, receptive, objective, non-attached enough to be able to literally be looking at your direct experience of the body and mind and to be looking at them with enough objectivity to not take them as self and discern from this um, detached perspective what the heck is going on (laughs) in this body and mind how we're relating to it all what constitutes and creates suffering what constitutes and creates the liberation from suffering and that's that's the whole practice in a nutshell isn't it so uh offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. I hope um, you find them helpful and useful in your practice. So shall we close with the um, reflections on sharing of blessings? Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpasses the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.